Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. How are you doing this week, GC? Are you ready to dive on into things? You bet, Zach. Any interesting orders? There are. Last Friday, the court ordered a California county to allow churches to hold indoor worship services. The order was brief, and it said that the outcome was, quote, clearly dictated by the court's earlier opinion in South Bay Pentecostal. The court also took up two new cases, both involving Social Security benefits. The first case will decide whether Congress violated the Equal Protection Clause by excluding Puerto Rico from the Supplemental Security Income Program, and the second case will decide whether pensions for a dual-status technician, that is, someone who is in the military but is paid partly as a civil servant and partly as a member of the military, depending on the work performed, are, quote, payments based wholly on service as a member of the Uniformed Service for purposes of the Social Security Act. This matters because if the member's pension is not based wholly on military service, then a windfall elimination provision of the act reduces his Social Security benefits. We had three oral arguments this week. First up is United States versus Arthrex. The question there is, are administrative patent judges principal officers of the United States such that the Constitution's Appointments Clause requires them to be appointed by the President with the advice and consent of the Senate? That is the question at the heart of the three consolidated cases in Arthrex. The second question is, if they are principal officers, how should the court fix the problem? The Federal Circuit, from which this case arose, held that administrative patent judges are principal officers and, to remedy their unconstitutional appointments, it severed from the statute the provision that granted them life tenure. Now, the answer to the first question, are they principal officers, turns on how much power and independence patent judges have weighed against the amount of supervisory control the director of the Patent and Trademark Office has over them. That is a thorny factual question because the relationship between administrative patent judges and the director is unique among federal agencies and very complex. The director has some control over the judges, but he or she has no final review of their decisions. With respect to the second question, the appropriate remedy, Arthrex argued that the Federal Circuit's severance remedy is not good enough because the judges are still not accountable to the director. And so uh, Arthrex argued that the court should dismiss the case and leave Congress uh, to fix the remedy. The government argued that severing the judge's life tenure was good enough, and another litigant in the case took the position that if the real problem was a lack of reviewability, the proper remedy would be giving the director final review over the decisions of patent judges. The justices wrestled hard with this case. There were a lot of rapid-fire questions from many of them, especially Justice Thomas. That sounds like a very interesting case, GC. I'll be uh, interested to see how it turns out. On Tuesday, the court also heard consolidated arguments in two voting rights cases from Arizona, Branovich v. Democratic National Committee and Arizona Republican Party v. the Democratic National Committee. Two elections provisions are at issue in these cases. 
The first is Arizona's requirement that voters cast their ballot at their assigned precinct on election day in order to have their ballot counted. And the second is Arizona's prohibition on ballot harvesting, which is a practice where third parties collect absentee ballots in order to deliver them to election officials. In its post-argument analysis, SCOTUS blog said that the justices seemed likely to uphold both provisions, but that the real question left was whether a majority would coalesce around a standard for determining whether voting laws and practices violated Section 2 of the Federal Voting Rights Act, and if so, what standard that would be. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had struck down both provisions as violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the VRA. In doing so, it applied what it called a two-part results test. Under this test, a court first looks to see whether a policy disproportionately affects the ability of minorities to participate in the political process, and if so, next asks whether there is a link between that policy and the unequal opportunities to participate. Michael Carvin of Jones Day argued for the Arizona Republican Party, and Arizona Attorney General Mark Bronovich argued for the state, and in a sense for himself since he was a named party to the case. General Bronovich pressed the arguments that Arizona had a legitimate interest in both of these provisions in order to prevent voter fraud, and several of the justices seemed to agree. Chief Justice Roberts, in particular, noted a 2005 report from a bipartisan commission that was chaired by former President Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker that said absentee ballots are the, quote, largest source of voter fraud and recommended that ballot harvesting be prevented. Justices Alito and Barrett expressed concern that under the results test or a similar one discussed at the argument, most voting procedures could be challenged. Justice Kavanaugh noted that two dozen other states, including some without a history of discrimination, also have an out-of-precinct policy similar to Arizona's. The arguments in this case were certainly spirited, and while I'm hesitant to make any predictions after 2020, I do agree with SCOTUS Blog's assessment that the justices will likely uphold these provisions— If they don't, that would usher in a sea change in election administration, especially if states could no longer require voters to vote at their assigned precincts. But it'll certainly be interesting to see how the justices rule and what the final vote count will be in these cases. That brings us finally to Carr versus Saul. The question in Carr is, if you want to challenge the validity of a Social Security administrative law judge, do you have to raise that issue before that judge, or can you raise it for the first time on appeal to a federal court? In this case, the petitioners were denied benefits by a Social Security administrative law judge, and on appeal raised for the first time the argument that the judges were invalidly appointed because they were not appointed in accordance with the Appointments Clause. That argument hinged on Lucia versus Securities and Exchange Commission, which you might recall from 2018, held that SEC administrative law judges were officers of the United States subject to the Appointments Clause. So everyone in this case agrees that the Social Security ALJs fall within the scope of Lucia and should have been appointed in accordance with the Appointments Clause. The only issue is whether the litigants have to raise that issue before the ALJs themselves. Now, if you just listen to the questioning, the justices seemed pretty set against petitioners. Several of the justices, for instance, focused on the bad incentives that would be created by allowing appointments clause challenges to be raised for the first time on appeal. 
A claimant could lose on the merits, raise an appointments clause challenge on appeal, and then get a do-over. That is, as long as the appointments clause problem persists. Once it's been cured, so too is that loophole. But the hostility to the petitioners from the questioning was somewhat surprising in light of a 20-year-old plurality opinion by Justice Thomas called Sims versus Apfel, in which the court said that there was no issue exhaustion requirement at the appellate stage of agency social security proceedings. Now, if that case applies here, and there's a decent argument it does, petitioners are likely to win. That brings us to the opinions for this week, and there are two. The first is Pareto v. Wilkinson. In this case, the court held in a 5-3 to three decision written by Justice Gorsuch that the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, requires that an individual unlawfully in this country seeking relief from a deportation order must prove all aspects of his eligibility for relief. This includes that he has not been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude, such as fraud. In this case, Pareda had been convicted of the state crime of impersonating someone else, which could be committed in multiple ways, only one of which would not involve fraud. Justice Gorsuch reasons that because the INA places on an applicant the burden of proving that he qualifies for relief from deportation, any ambiguity in the nature of a conviction must be resolved against him. Pareto failed to carry his burden because he refused to produce any evidence about his crime of conviction even after the government introduced evidence suggesting that he was convicted under a law setting forth crimes involving fraud. Justice Breyer, joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, dissented and would have followed a so-called categorical approach to the issue. In his opinion, a judge may ask whether an alien was necessarily convicted of a disqualifying offense. Any doubt whether an applicant is disqualified for relief because of a conviction uh, should be resolved against the government in Justice Breyer's opinion. Justice Barrett did not participate in this decision. Last up, we have Fish and Wildlife Service versus Sierra Club. In this case, the court considered the scope of an agency's deliberative process privilege, which protects from disclosure documents reflecting advice or deliberations in the policymaking process. In a 7-2 decision written by Justice Barrett, her first uh, majority opinion, the court held that a document is not final and subject to disclosure until the agency treats it as such and concludes its deliberative process. So, in this case, the Environmental Protection Agency was drafting a new rule, and it asked the Fish and Wildlife Service to prepare a biological opinion to assess the impact of that rule on endangered fish species. The service prepared a draft opinion, finding that the rule would jeopardize endangered fish. After reviewing that draft and consulting with the service, the EPA then revised its proposed rule and asked for a new biological opinion. The service issued a final biological opinion, finding that the new rule would now not jeopardize any endangered fish. So the Sierra Club submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to get the first opinion. But the court said, you can't have it. It's part of the deliberative process because the agency did not treat it as a final document, and the deliberative process did not end until the EPA settled on the final rule. Justice Breyer, joined by Sotomayor, dissented. In his view, the first opinion was, and I quote, a final document with respect to its content. That the EPA might change its rule as a result of the opinion does not alter the finality or final effect of the original document. And that brings us to our interview this week. We are joined by another one of our favorite public servants. We are joined today by Judge Britt Grant of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. 
Judge, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Judge, did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, I wasn't certain, but I think I was always destined to be a lawyer. My mom went back to school when my sister and I were in um, elementary school, and she became, she had been a teacher before we were born. And then later she went back to school to become a counselor. And so she, part of her training was learning how to give these tests. And so she would always give me these career tests starting in elementary school. And oddly, even then it was always off the charts for a lawyer. So although I, although I didn't go straight into that path, I think that probably it was meant to be. Uh, so when you went to college, did you have in mind by then that you were going to be a lawyer? You know, I wasn't sure. I I had always, you know, you push back a little get, a little bit against your mom. You say, that test is so silly. Why should I do that? Um, but, you know, I was always interested. I was interested in politics. And of course, lots of, there's a lot of overlap um, career-wise between those two fields. And so I had it in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something that I was really focused on. I was just, um, you know, wanted to get the most out of my undergraduate education and then see where things went from there. And you didn't actually go straight through undergrad to law school. What did you do in the middle? That's right. I um, I could not have been more fortunate. I went to work on the Hill right after um, right after college. My husband and I got married right after college and headed up to D.C. Um, and so that was wonderful. I worked on the Hill for then Representative Nathan Deal, who became governor later once I was also back in Atlanta. Really enjoyed being on the Hill um, and then was fortunate enough to get a position in the White House um, about a year later. So I think it was a, a dream for any young person in Washington, D.C. to be able to work at those two places. And just it was honestly hard to give it up. I think I had thought after college, I did start to think about going to law school. And I thought, well, maybe I'll wait two years, but two became four once I had the opportunity <laughs> to be in the White House and get all those great experiences. What are some of the things you did working for Representative Deal and uh, at the White House? Sure. Well, I started out um, with the Deal office as legislative correspondent, basically in charge of drafting letters back to constituents, um, communicating things like that. And before I left, I was promoted to communications director. So um, press releases, um, theoretically some interviews, although um, Deal's press strategy at that time was pretty quiet. Um, I really admired that he he did a lot and he I always wanted to do releases and talk about it. And he had a more quiet approach. He was more interested in getting things done than in being celebrated for them. So I, I really admire that approach, honestly, even though as a young communications director, you want to be blasting things out. Um, and then at the, at the White House, I started out um, just shortly before 9-11, actually. So that job turned out to be, that experience turned out to be very different than I had expected. Um, I was in the West Wing on 9-11 and experienced the evacuation and the, the return to the office the next day in a, a totally different world. Um, and of course, a totally different experience at the White House. But I was honored to be able to participate in a small way in um, helping move our country forward after that. And uh, while you were in the White House, your husband had an interesting job as well. What Can you tell us about that? Um, well, I can now. Um, he, After 9-11, um, he actually felt very moved to serve the country in a different way. He'd been working in the private sector and um, he applied to work at the CIA and was chosen and had a, a great um, a great career there until until he left. So, you know, of course, I don't really know what he did, but um, <laughs> it was I'm really proud of him for stepping up to serve um, after 9-11. So what motivated you then to go to law school? 
You know, I've, as I had spent time, especially in the White House, I realized that a lot of the people that I really admired were lawyers and a lot of the people whose jobs I thought were most interesting were lawyers. So, um, you know, I thought that that seemed like a, a natural next step for this English and political science major, um, I, you know, based on thinking back to those old tests and also um, just the, the career path that I wanted to take, it seemed like the right the right thing for me. And uh, after law school, skipping forward a little bit, you sure. clerked for uh, then judge Brett Kavanaugh. What was that experience like? It, it was wonderful. He is such a great judge or justice now and role model and just a great person. It was really, you couldn't have a better way to start learning about the law. Um, and he also, like I've tried to do, focused on having clerks who um, were really supportive of one another and helped helped each other learn and helped each other grow. And so I've, I'm really fortunate now to have him still as a mentor and also dear friends who are my co-clerks. So that's something I'm doing my very best to recreate for my clerks. The Kavanaugh family has been very important to me as a personally and professionally. Do you have any special memories of your time clerking for him? Um, sure. You know, we, um, we always worked very hard. Um, even though the DC circuit has a lower caseload, you wouldn't have known it by the number of hours that we were in the office. I think Justice Kavanaugh is known to be a, a serious workhorse and he expected the same of us. So, um, you know, we were, we were in chambers early, had, um, had lunch together every day and sometimes would lure him out to lunch with us. And, you know, just special memories of working hard, trying to find the right answer, um, it was drilled into us to really show respect for all the parties. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to sit around and talk about the issues when you're a law clerk, but these people who are bringing these cases really care about them. And whether it's a, you know, an interest group or a company or a person or a, you know, all of these things, these cases are so important to the individuals who are involved in them. And I think that was one thing that was really drilled into all of us that has stuck with me. Did he have any traditions with his law clerks? Um, you know, I was I was only his second year of law clerk, so I think traditions were still kind of building up. And same thing for me now. But <clears throat> one thing that I I have fun memories of is when we have um, a reunion every five years. We do what's called the BK Five K, and um, he's a very good runner. One year, I felt like I could actually run that race, and I it's the hardest race I've ever run because he's a fast person and a lot of the other clerks are pretty fast too. So I think I was bringing up the rear, but it was a really fun, it was a really fun way to get out there and run around Washington, DC. Besides Justice Kavanaugh, who have some of the other mentors been? I've been fortunate um, to have so many great mentors. I think it's just, I can't repay all of those who've helped me along the years and taught me so much. A, a few that come to mind are, um, you know, certainly many wonderful mentors at the White House, but one one set of folks that comes to mind is when I was in the Office of Cabinet Affairs, that was my last job at the White House before I went to law school. And there were two deputy directors, um, Tevi Troy, who you all may know, he's a um, great thinker and commentator on healthcare issues, especially, but really lots of things. He was one of the um, deputy directors and so was Peter Sobich. And they were such different people, but just both wonderful people and really supported me as a young person in the office. And we've all kept in touch through all these years. And it's been so fun to see their continued success. And I just really appreciate all that they, all that they taught me about, about being a, a hard worker and a, you know, thinking through problems in a tough way. Um, and then, of course, in the in the Georgia Attorney General's office, I was privileged to work 
um, with Sam Olins, the attorney general, when I started there and with Chris Carr, who's the current attorney general, um, shortly before I was appointed to the Georgia Supreme Court. And to really see both of them demonstrate a commitment to the rule of law and principles and, um, you know, it's a political office, but it's also an office where your commitment to the rule of law is really important. And I'm so proud to have worked for both of them and seen the great leadership that they gave to Georgians. So Judge, you started after your clerkship at Kirkland and Ellis in DC. What was that experience like and what kind of cases did you litigate? I feel like I litigated all the kinds of cases. Um, Kirkland Ellis was a great firm for me and they really, um, I really got great experiences, which I think is what allowed me to move on to the next job um, and know how to do so many things there. Um, but one of the reasons I chose Kirkland is that they really allow you to take a smorgasbord of cases. So I worked on appeals. I worked on an antitrust case, securities, a plaintiff side, 1983, defamation, contracts. I mean, it goes on and on. And so I think one reason I like being an appellate judge is that you get to be a generalist. And I think even as a young associate, I really was drawn to being a generalist. Um, I figured I didn't know enough about law to know for sure what I wanted to do. And I really liked about Kirkland that they gave me the opportunity to um, to kind of dip my toe in a lot of different waters. Uh, after that, you went back to Georgia and uh, held a number of positions in the attorney general's office, starting with, um, if I'm correct, the Office for Legal Policy. What did you do yes. there? That's that's the job title that no one ever knows what it really means. And part of that is because it was it was a little bit just up to me on a day-to-day basis what it meant. Certainly, I was in charge of the legislative agenda. So during the session of the General Assembly, I would be over across the street at the Capitol um, trying to work with members and um, share the Attorney General's priorities. Also, we would, um, in the office, the, both the Solicitor General and I would meet with um, members of the General Assembly if they had questions about bills or constitutional questions about legislation they were considering, things like that. So that was a fun part of fun part of the job. Um, functionally, I served as the deputy SG. I think in a lot of ways, I would review multi-state briefs, especially, and work closely with the Solicitor General on um, some of the big cases that we were handling in the office. And then one of the most interesting things that developed was um, we had a, a Medicaid fraud case, a civil case, that the the state ended up intervening in before the federal government. And that's a, a long story that's too detailed to share here, but we didn't have a civil Medicaid fraud unit. And the attorney general said, well, Britt, you did civil litigation. Why don't you go teach them how to do that? So we basically helped stand up a civil Medicaid fraud unit. And in that particular case, um, we ended up getting a settlement along with the federal government of over half a billion dollars. So it was a an unusual move, but a courageous move by the attorney general to take that on. And I'm really proud to have had a part in it. You also from there became the Solicitor General of Georgia. What was that experience like? Oh, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to get to lead up the state's appellate litigation and work with all the attorneys in the office. Um, it was only me and one um, half deputy and then one we fortunately got a second deputy solicitor general um, partway through my time, but we were a very small shop. So there was no way that we could do everything on our own. And so we had to, we had to, and got to work closely with the other lawyers in the office, whether it was editing briefs, handling moots, um, just really communicating about office priorities. And of course, working also on multi-state litigation. Um, so I got to argue a case on behalf of I think 12 or so states, um, 
ultimately before the 11th Circuit about the Waters of the United States rule. So it was a really great opportunity to get to know colleagues across the country, many of whom are now also on the federal bench. So that's been exciting. What was the transition like from Solicitor General to State Supreme Court Justice? You know, I've said that I think that's actually maybe the best job to transition to um, a state Supreme Court from as State Solicitor General. And here's why. As State Solicitor General, I think certainly you're you're in charge of litigating cases and being involved with the state code and the state constitution and looking at the federal constitution. Um, so you're very deep within those those issues in those areas of law. But you also have, I think, as a representative of the state, a slightly different responsibility than a private lawyer, which is certainly you always want to do the the right thing for your client, but your client is the state and the people of the state. And sometimes the right thing is making sure that the law is interpreted correctly rather than kind of the short-term benefit that your client might receive from a particular ruling. So I think as Solicitor General, I was involved in thinking through not only what interpretation of the law would be the best for my client, but what interpretation of the law is actually correct, which is much more similar to, I think, what you're always thinking through as a judge. So I think there really couldn't be a better jumping off point. At any point in your career, did you uh, know that you wanted to be a judge? I think it crosses a lot of people's minds. Sometimes when I'm giving speeches to the Federal Society of various colleges, I'll mention thinking about being a judge. And I say, although no one will admit it, of course, <laughs> we're here at this meeting. Obviously, you've all thought of it. Um, but, you know, I think when I really started to think about it was I was getting sworn in to the Georgia um, Supreme Court. And some of my friends that I got to know, some appellate judges that I really respected, um, were swearing me into the Georgia Supreme Court and the Georgia Court of Appeals. And after we did that, it was very special. We did it. It was a private ceremony in one of the courtrooms in the building. And they approached me and said, by the way, you really need to think about um, perhaps becoming a judge. And I was just blown away and so honored that this group of people that I respected so much would think that that was something that that I ought to think about. And so I really, I started to think about it after that. And it, that conversation still means so much to me. Can you compare and contrast being a state Supreme Court justice and a federal circuit judge? Sure. I mean, they're, you know, they're both such wonderful jobs. And I think the the core duties are the same, but the day-to-day actually is pretty different, mostly because on the federal bench, appellate judges are pretty isolated. Um, I think I'm sure you've heard that from other folks, but um, you know, I see very few people even set aside the pandemic. You mostly see your clerks, um, and you know, I see other judges occasionally, but the even the layout of the building does not encourage it. Lisa Branch, fortunately, was already a dear friend, and so we'll see each other. Um, we'll see each other frequently, um, and I really respect and admire all of my fellow judges in the courthouse. But even just the building isn't set up for it, and of course, I have many colleagues in other cities, and so that that's a great contrast to at the state court level, where we all sat at the same on the same hall, and if I had a kind of a question or issue with an opinion, I wouldn't write a memo about it. I would walk down the hall and talk to the other justice. And, you know, the same thing would happen if someone had a question about one of my opinions. And we had in-person meetings once a week um, to go through the cases, to decide habeas petitions, to decide cert petitions, to vote on opinions. And so there was just significant interaction 
um, between all of us. And we were also in charge of the state bar, which meant state bar retreats and state bar meetings and various discussions. So the amount of interaction that I got to have both with my colleagues and with members of the bar was dramatically greater. And it's something I, it's something I really miss. I love being a federal judge, but I do miss the kind of personal interactions of the state court. President Trump had included you on a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. How did you react to seeing your name on that list? <laughs> it was a shock. I started um I started getting all these texts on my phone that said congratulations and my reaction was for what? <laughs> I don't know what you're congratulating me for. And finally someone sent me a link. So, um, you know, it was it was certainly a, a nice surprise. Um I was also I was very more excited to see now Justice Kavanaugh on the list because um, that was that was a name that I had thought should have been on there from the start. So um, that was it was really exciting and an honor to be on that list next to him. But I I knew that he was hopefully going to be the one who got the nod next. So in your time on the state and federal benches, have you been able to form any traditions with your clerks? You know we're still we're still early, um, but I do I do have some. Hopefully hopefully we could call it traditions. Um, we have some silly birthday hats that we like to wear on people's birthdays. And I always host the clerks and their significant others here at my home for a Christmas party. Unfortunately, this year we missed it for obvious reasons, but hopefully we'll be able to do it this spring. Um, and we've had um, we've had a, a get-together, um, a little party in D.C. during the time of the Federal Society meeting because a lot of folks will be up there for that. And so that's that's been a lot of fun. So hopefully as we get past this pandemic, we can get some of those transitions back in gear. In your chambers, do you keep any uh, special mementos from your career? I do. Um, these aren't from my career, but I like to keep um, I like to keep a lot of artwork for my kids around. Um, it's pretty fun to to look at that and think of all that you know, all that they keep me on my toes always. Um, so that's fun to remember both halves of my life while I'm sitting in the office. And one, there are many special mementos, but one is a um, a chair. I'm not sure what the correct term is it, term for it is, but a special chair from um, my high school, the Westminster Schools, where Judge Lisa Branch and I were honored as distinguished alumni at graduation last year. And that was just extraordinary because I love my time at Westminster so much. And to have this special chair in the office as a memento of that um, really means a lot. Well, Judge, one final question before we go. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? You know, that's a hard one. Um, I think, you know, I think John Jay would be, um, would be a great one. And I might talk to him about whether he whether he thought he could have done any of the Federalist Papers better um, after he got kind of had to step aside from that. I'd also, I think, be interested to talk to Taft and talk to him about, you know, the differences between being president and the chief justice of the United States. I know the differences are obvious, but I'd be really interested to hear his perspective on serving in those two offices. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. GC, are you ready for today's trivia questions? You bet. Great. Well, I thought today we'd talk a little bit about the justices and their educations. You know, with the addition of Justice Barrett, who attended the University of Notre Dame for law school, it's no longer an all-Ivy League court. But even though the other justices all attended either Harvard or Yale for law school, they still have varied 
interests and experiences. So here we go with the trivia questions. First up, which current justice majored in English literature in college? Well, I know that Justice Thomas did. I assume from the phrasing of your question, he's the only one. So my answer is Justice Thomas. You're absolutely right. Justice Thomas. He graduated from the College of the Holy Cross in 1971 with a degree in English literature. And then, of course, he graduated from Yale Law School in 1974. Justice Thomas has said that the novelist Richard Wright was one of the most influential writers in his life. You're out of the gate with a strong start, GC. So All next right, let's up, see if I can keep it up. All right. Next up, who was the last justice to be appointed without ever attending law school? Oh, that's interesting. You sort of threw my own question from a few weeks ago back at me when I asked you uh, which, which law school produced the most uh, justices, <laughs> and it was a trick question. Well, this isn't uh, a know, trick I, question. <laughs> I don't know. So it's Justice James F. Burns. He left school after the seventh grade, taught himself the law, passed the bar in 1903, and he later served in the Senate until he was appointed by FDR to the Supreme Court in 1941. But his tenure was very short, and he resigned the following year, uh, and by 1943 was serving as the Director of Economic Mobilization. Uh, he later became Harry S. Truman's Secretary of State, and after that became the Governor of South Carolina. And as an interesting note, uh, his tenure as Associate Justice is believed to be the second shortest behind Associate Justice John Rutledge's. John Rutledge served for one year and 18 days from 1790 to 1791, and Burns served for one year, two months, and 25 days from 1941 to 1942. Uh, so a very accomplished man uh, who happened to have a very short tenure on the Supreme Court. Interesting. All right. Question number three. Uh, so Justice Burns uh, never attended law school. But my next question is, who was the last justice to be appointed who did not graduate from law school? Oh, that's interesting. So this person started but didn't finish. Correct. Correct. Ah, I don't know the answer to this one either. Well, to be fair, the, both of these were very tough questions, uh, but it was actually Justice Robert Jackson. Uh, he took his oath of office three days after Justice Burns, uh, and Justice Jackson completed a year of law school at Albany Law School. Uh, he passed the bar and then, of course, went on to serve as uh, the Solicitor General and the Attorney General before becoming one of the most distinguished Supreme Court justices. And, of course, he later served as the Chief Counsel at the International Military Tribunal during the Nuremberg trial of several prominent former Nazis as well. Interesting. I had no idea. Next up, GC, do you know which current justice considered becoming a priest uh, in school? I certainly do. That is also Justice Thomas. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, while in school, he considered becoming a Catholic priest, and he actually attended a seminary. Uh, however, of course, he eventually decided to pursue a career in the law, and boy, am I uh, glad that he made that decision. All right, final question, GC. Which justice worked in a steel mill to help pay their way uh, through school? 
Uh, I know this one, too. That is Chief Justice John Roberts. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Even though the Chief Justice is fluent in Latin and went to Harvard for both his undergraduate and law school degrees, uh, he worked hard to pay his tuition bill, and he worked in a steel mill over the summers uh, to do that. And in fact, the steel business ran in his family because his father, John G. Roberts Sr., worked for the Bethlehem Steel Company for many, many years. Good job today, GC. Those were uh, some tough questions. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, uh, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. For more information, visit heritage.org.